I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Happy Valencrimes Day, everybody. Happy Valencrimes. I hope you're all celebrating in your own special ways. Such as with crime. Yeah, go go steal the chocolate. Yes. Smash a florist window. It's all like 80% off now. It's practically free. <laughs> they won't miss it. Now, our annual Valencrimes episodes. Yes. The, the first three, the previous three. Yes, which are my babies. Uh, they, they've all covered famous Chicago murders. And yes. Murderers. Yes. As they should. <laughs> this year, for my first Valencrimes episode, mm, uh, I'd like I'm not to, okay with this. to cast a bit of a broader net and cover a recent crime that shall never be punished. Does it involve murder? You might say that. It is the Bush administration's case for the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Okay, I have feelings about this. I mean, there are a million needless deaths. That's yeah, way more than Leopold and Loeb got up to. But I feel like you're not interpreting what Valen Crimes really is. It's a massive uh, a case of fraud on an international scale. Okay. Tell me about this thing. <laughs> I knew you were going to do me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the plans for this invasion were ready to go uh, as practically as soon as there was a Bush administration. Uh-huh. Uh, in the decade or so since the Gulf War ended, U.S. policy toward Iraq was one of containment. We're talking about no-fly zones and, and economic sanctions and all of these famed U.N. weapons inspections. Mm -hmm. Now, during the 2000 election, the Republican platform included removing Saddam Hussein from power, that they literally ran on that as an issue. Yeah. The first meeting of Bush's Security Council included plans for an invasion of Iraq, and on September 11th, uh, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld told the Pentagon to prepare plans for attacking Iraq. Mm -hmm. uh, his aides' handwritten notes from a meeting later that afternoon say that Rumsfeld wanted, uh, quote, best info fast, judge whether good enough to hit Saddam Hussein at the same time, not only Osama bin Laden. Uh, and also, quote, need to move swiftly, go massive, sweep it all up, things related and not. Mm -hmm. So the next day, September 12th, 2001, uh, President Bush asked his counterterrorism director to look for a link between Iraq and the attacks and was pretty upset when he was told it was unlikely there w they would find one. Yeah. 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 A few weeks later, in a November meeting with General Tommy Franks, uh, Donald Rumsfeld started asking about possible justifications for, quote, the decapitation of government. Huh. Some things from the official, like, typed agenda notes for this meeting. Uh, U.S. discovers Saddam connection to September 11 attack or to anthrax attacks. Oh. Dispute over WMD inspections. Mm. Start now thinking about inspection demands. Mm. So, so why was this such a central focus? Why uh, were their sights set on uh, Iraq and Saddam Hussein, regardless of the facts? Because they wanted to blow it up. <laughs> Essentially, yes. But the but one reason they they were so uh, intent on this is ideological. 
The George W. Bush administration was the high point of power for the neoconservative movement. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to take a moment to answer the question, what are neoconservatives? Okay. Or or neocons for short. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Sounds too hip. Everything's got to be abbreviated, I guess. Newspapers aren't still using movable type, okay? You can use the whole word. <laughs> I promise. No, because they have they pay their writer or like their writers by like the letter. By the character. Yeah, the okay. character. And they're like, nope, you're asking for too much money. So neoconservatism is an ideological tradition in US conservatism, as you might guess. Yeah. It started among the pro-war Democrats of the 1960s, who saw the peace movement starting and decided to not be part of that big tent anymore. Tent's not big enough for the both of them. Mm -hmm. Then they decided they also weren't big fans of uh, President Johnson's Great Society programs. And uh, every little step kept them moving further right until they were the the core of the Bush-era Republican Party. Mm Mm-hmm. What they believe is that there is good and evil in the world, and it is sorted out into different countries. Of course. So the the U.S. is good because the U.S. is the inheritor of civilization dating back to the classical Greeks. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is the, the duty of good countries, like the United States, to use their military force to overthrow evil governments. Uh-huh. Because there, people are good everywhere, but there are evil governments. Uh-huh. Uh, and power should be used to ensure and maintain U.S. global hegemony. Because the U.S. is the good guys, so if they're the biggest guys in town, that's better for everybody. Mm-hmm. USA number one. You might be reminded of, of the axis of evil section of the 2002 State of the Union address. A lot of things blend together from that time. <laughs> That's why we're talking about it. That's the point. So uh, the the neocons of the early 90s were not big fans of the fact that the Gulf War didn't continue on to Baghdad. Mm -hmm. So here's a few of the specific names in and around the Bush administration. For one, Paul Wolfowitz, Deputy Deputy Secretary of State. Uh, Douglas J. Fife, Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Elliot Abrams, who we've mentioned on the show before. Mm-hmm. A special assistant to the president and member of the National Security Council. Uh, Richard Pearl, Chair of the Defense Policy Board Advisory Committee. John Bolton, Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. Uh, Paul Bremer, who would become Interim President of Iraq uh, with the power to rule by decree. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Frum, special assistant to the president and speechwriter, he came up with the phrase Axis of Evil. Uh, and James Woolsey Jr., who is not uh, actually part of the Bush White House, he was uh, President Clinton's CIA director. But he, uh, as former CIA director, was uh, plenty happy to put pressure on the current CIA and, and talk about Iraq al-Qaeda links. Mm-hmm. Vice President Cheney and Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld weren't neoconservatives themselves, technically, but they sure did fill their staffs with a bunch of them and follow the advice of neoconservative uh, neoconservative think tanks and columnists, Rumsfeld in particular between the two. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure where he uh, uh, escapes the label exactly, at least at this point in his career. It makes no sense to me. Yeah. 
But it's something people say. I'm reporting the facts as provided by my sources. <laughs> so even with the, the fervor of 2001 and 2002, there couldn't be a large-scale invasion without public support. At least that is what the White House believed. So they set out to manufacture some widespread support. I don't know. I feel like they could have gotten away with anything then. Yeah, we're talking about like 80, 90% approval ratings. It was a time where it was, if you slap a flag on it, people will support it. Absolutely. So internal administration memos call the case for war, quote, the product. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not being, you know, uh, cynical by saying they are selling the case for war. They're already using sales language. Yeah. They're going to talk about their buyer in a second. <laughs> so in order to, you know, provide support for the war, in order to, to sell the product, you needed to have a case made. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about uh, intelligence reports and intelligence uh, uh you know, services, including the CIA. Mm -hmm. Now, the CIA and the other intelligence services are meant to remain independent, right? That That's the idea. That's the point. Facts are facts. And trying to support a preset conclusion leads to bad decisions, uh, leads to a lack of trust. So so just let them be and, and follow the truth wherever it goes, right? Yeah. Reality doesn't always meet expectations. No. So it shouldn't really be a surprise that CIA director George Tennant and the intelligence community at large were not very popular in the fall of 2001. Mm -hmm. They missed a big one. Yeah. A failure of that size needs to be explained. Or maybe, just maybe, you can keep your job if you get with the program. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Wolfowitz, Rumsfeld, and Feith set up their own internal intelligence office within, you know, the, the uh, Department of Defense that would provide their own analysis to compete with CIA conclusions working from the same raw intelligence. This was a strategy that Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld had already used to advocate for their Cold War policies back in previous administrations mm -hmm. relating to, like, missile defense and other stuff that they wanted to take hardline neocon stances on, even though the, the intelligence did not back them up. Mm -hmm. uh, Rumsfeld also threatened to make a new undersecretary for intelligence who would have the same authority as the director of the CIA and, and diminish the importance of the whole agency. Mm -hmm. So from then on, the strategy was all about wording. It is true to say that al-Qaeda had no substantive support from Iraq, but you could also say... Technically, Iraq and Al-Qaeda have been in contact and then just not allow any follow-up questions. Yeah. Which is something George Tenet said to Congress. Mm -hmm. That then gets repeated in speeches as the CIA knows for a fact Iraq and Al-Qaeda have been in contact with this clear implication of an imminent terrorist attack using military-grade weapons. Mm -hmm. Terrifying. Or, even more common, you leak information to the press. So then, say, the New York Times writes, uh, according to administration officials, there is intelligence saying X, Y, Z. 
And now this more trustworthy external source with its fact-checking desk has their reputation to bolster the claim when uh, somebody from the administration goes on TV to say, well, even the New York Times is reporting that there is intelligence saying X, Y, Z. So uh, let's talk about some of that intelligence. Remember the mobile weapons research facilities that Saddam was supposed to have? Yeah. The the whole reason weapons inspectors couldn't find the labs is because they were on big trucks and always moving. Yeah. That came from a single source that spoke to German intelligence, who is codenamed Curveball. Mm-hmm. Very trustworthy codename right there. Yeah. Uh, Curveball was a defector and tried to use what he knew to get himself and his family German citizenship. Uh-huh. Uh, German intelligence knew the game he was playing. He was a known fabricator. U.S. intelligence never questioned Curveball themselves and never found another source to corroborate the mobile lab's story. Oh. In 2001, he publicly recanted the lies, like he went on TV with his real face and name and everything. Yeah. But he claimed his intent was to do anything to harm the Hussein regime, not to buy asylum with intelligence. He also said he'd gladly do it again. Yeah. But they did repeat the claim a lot. Oh, yeah. The mobile labs made it into into the 2003 State of the Union address, for one. Yeah. Then there's the the big one, the Al-Qaeda tie. Mm -hmm. Uh, Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda were ideologically opposed with incompatible agendas, but that did not stop the Bush administration from claiming otherwise. Yeah. Uh, in his September 21st daily intelligence brief, the president was told there was no known evidence linking Saddam Hussein to the September 11th attacks, and that, quote, there was scant credible evidence that Iraq had any significant collaborative ties with al-Qaeda. So they just have to come up with some. Hmm. An intelligence report from Prague claimed that there was a photograph of Mohammed Atta, one of the hijackers, meeting an Iraqi intelligence officer from uh, April 2001. Mm -hmm. The FBI analyst that saw the photograph determined that was not Mohammed Atta. For one, didn't look like him at all. Mm -hmm. Further investigation determined the meeting never happened. It was a different guy who happened to also be named Mohammed Atta. Oh. The CIA reported to the president as early as September 21st that the report doesn't add up. Mm -hmm. Uh, The FBI's investigation into Ada's timeline had him in Florida in April. Mm -hmm. But the administration leaked the raw intelligence report to the media, and on December 9th, 2001, uh, Vice President Cheney appeared on Meet the Press to say that the New York Times had evidence of a clear link between Iraq and the hijackers. Quote, it's been pretty well confirmed. Uh-huh. Uh, a CIA source told the New York Times that bin Laden himself had rejected any ties to Saddam Hussein, and the administration was only releasing intelligence that supported their case. This is something that the New York Times printed. Mm-hmm. This is public knowledge. Yes. Uh, members of the Defense Policy Board went to the press to attack the CIA's analysts in response. Uh, Cheney started walking the halls in Langley, just checking in on some low-level analysts, just to to make the pressure known. Mm -hmm. The administration is watching you. He is in the halls. Yeah. On September 25th, 2002, National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice claimed, quote, high-ranking detainees have said that Iraq provided some training to al-Qaeda in chemical weapons development. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Bush repeated the claim in even scarier terms in a Cincinnati speech uh, in October. Uh, the information came from a well-connected member of Al-Qaeda, Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi. Al-Libi was seized from FBI custody for rendition and turned over to Egyptian intelligence to be tortured. The, the stuff he said to the FBI, mostly all checked out. Everything he said under torture turned out to be a fabrication. Mm-hmm. An August CIA report cast doubt on his statements and pointed out some points were already known to be fabricated. Mm-hmm. When he was eventually released, Alibi recanted all statements made under torture. Mm-hmm. So on another Meet the Press appearance, this one September 8th, 2002, uh, Vice President Cheney said, quote, We know with absolute certainty that Hussein is using his procurement system to acquire what he needs to enrich uranium to build a nuclear weapon. So let's take a look at that absolute certainty. Oh, boy. We got to talk about the tubes. It's all about the tubes. All about the tubes. You, <laughs> if you were watching the news in 2002, 2003, you might remember the aluminum tubes. I might have blocked that part out. <laughs> the, the aluminum tubes that we were told were for use in gas centrifuges to, your, to enrich uranium. Mm-hmm. Now, the Department of Energy acquired samples of these exact tubes, the tubes in question, and their experts determined they were totally wrong for making a gas centrifuge. Oh. They were the wrong size, the wrong quality, the, the wrong thickness. Mm-hmm. They were instead for building conventional artillery rockets. It took a nuclear scientist that actually makes gas centrifuges about 15 minutes to see that the tubes were all wrong. Mm-hmm. It wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So internal CIA meetings became shouting matches between people who followed the evidence and people who wanted to protect the agency from administration pressure. Mm-hmm. So the, the initial report about, you know, the, the acquisition of tubes is leaked again to the New York Times, and Cheney uses the newspaper as his source, not the intelligence agencies that uh-huh. work under his discretion. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That same night is when Condoleezza Rice stoked fears on CNN with the famous quote, we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. That same night, Donald Rumsfeld was on Face the Nation and directly said, quote, imagine a September 11th with weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. Later that week, on the first anniversary of 9-11, Bush also brought up the tubes in a speech to the United Nations. Of course he did. The tubes were a big deal. They were major tubes. But even if the tubes don't check out, well, who cares? They don't need to build gas centrifuges because there are also reports of Iraq buying 500 metric tons of yellow cake uranium from Niger. Uh-huh. It's already enriched. Mm-hmm. Very scary. Very dangerous. Again, nobody from U.S. intelligence saw the, the contracts that this uh, uh, raw intelligence you know, mentioned. Just the reports from Italian intelligence saying they existed. Mm-hmm. So a former ambassador is sent in to take a look. This guy is an expert in Francophone Africa. He, he knows the people who are meant to have signed these contracts, right? Mm-hmm. And he determines they're forgeries. No such deal was ever made. Okay. I mean, but besides people's, you know, signatures being wrong or all the, the little tiny tricks that you imagine, you know, spot a forgery and all this spy craft. Well, there were some more obvious things like the president referring to his powers under the 1965 Constitution. 
Niger's constitution was from 1999. Oh. Something presidents would probably be aware of. Yeah. When talking about the source of their authority. Yeah, you know. Uh, The documents also included a letter from the foreign minister, a foreign minister who had not held that position for 11 years. Oh. Never mind the fact that, you know, the, the... Anything coming out of that mine was under the, the discretion of France and not the, the foreign minister of Niger, no matter who he is. Mm-hmm. So the CIA never believed the yellow cake story, but the administration presented it as another certainty anyway. Every, every speech, every interview, they're talking about, they're using words like bulletproof, absolute certainty, slam dunk, you know. They're, they're never letting on that there's any possibility of debate. Mm-hmm. That claim also appeared in the 2003 State of the Union, where it was called British intelligence this time. Uh-huh. See, the Italian intelligence had already been debunked, but because there is a, a, a British white paper that essentially said, hey, the Italians say this contract exists, we should probably take a look at it. Well, now we're talking about a second claim, so people don't immediately connect it to being that known forgery. Oh. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So now that we've talked about uh, these claims and where they came from, uh, we're going to take a quick break before we come back and talk about how they were used. Oh, boy. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. So now, now that uh, the Bush administration is massaging uh, suspect at best intelligence, I don't want to think of them massaging. <laughs> no, no, un- unwanted shoulder grabs is, is more a Joe Biden thing, I guess. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but a. Uh, uh, Presenting things that are disputed at best, known forgeries in many cases, uh, as bulletproof cases uh, for rationale for war. It's time to talk about how they tried to convince others to see the light that they saw. Mm -hmm. So the American people don't have access to these internal debates or intelligence reports. No. They only have the word of the people who have the biggest microphones to go on. Mm Mm-hmm. Who, who's getting uh, uh, invited on Face the Nation? It's not the, the one lone CIA analyst who isn't worried about getting fired. Mm-hmm. It's the vice president. Yeah. But the Senate Intelligence Committee did have clearance, and they tried to use it. Mm-hmm. Committee Chair Bob Graham asked for an intelligence analysis, as you might in his position. Mm-hmm. And he got a 25-page classified report on the threat posed by Iraq, which reflected the inconclusive nature of the publicized threats. Uh, a defense intelligence agency report to the committee had the same reservations, the same sort of even-handed take. Mm-hmm. A month or so later, a second CIA report followed that bolstered the administration's claims and put all the skepticism down in the footnotes. Mm-hmm. So you'd have footnotes like, by the way, this comes from a, a single uh, lone source who is known to fabricate. Mm-hmm. Let's hope they read the footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> According to a congressional staffer who, who was attached to the committee at the time, 
quote, they didn't do analysis. What they did was they just amassed everything they could that said anything bad about Iraq and put it in a document. Yeah, sounds about right. Uh, Graham demanded a declassified national intelligence estimate so members of Congress and their constituents could make an educated decision. Like, if we're talking about an authorization for, for an invasion, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. You want people to know what they're talking about. Now, there was an earlier classified version of the uh, NIE that was about as even-handed as the con- about the controversial claims as that initial 25-page report. So on October 1st, 2002, the declassified version came out, omitting all evidence that went against administration claims, including uh, one line, quote, All intelligence experts agree that Iraq is seeking nuclear weapons and that these tubes could be used in a centrifuge enrichment program. Mm-hmm. The tubes! The tubes return! <laughs> So, Senator Graham demanded Director Tenet declassify the dissenting material as well. And then, that night, he got a phone call saying the White House had ordered Tenet to do no such thing. Huh. That very day was the Cincinnati speech President Bush made that we mentioned earlier, where uh, one of his quotes was, Iraq could decide on any given day to provide a biological or chemical weapon to a terrorist group or individual terrorists. And also, quote, we are concerned that Iraq is exploring ways of using uh, unmanned aerial vehicles for missions targeting the United States. Meanwhile, earlier that day, Tennant was telling uh, Senator Graham that there was a low likelihood of Iraq launching an unplanned attack on the U.S. Mm -hmm. Tennant, when pressed, said that there was no inconsistency between those statements. It's all about the specific wording. Mm-hmm. Saying something could happen any day and saying something is unlikely to happen in the current climate aren't inconsistent, technically. Technically. So the dissent was hidden from public view, except for all of these dissenters who would speak usually anonymously to the press. Mm-hmm. Except for except for all of that. But the, the big documents that, that were uh, disseminated to Congress hid the dissent. Mm-hmm. The dissent that was also uh, along other public channels, public record. And while uh, uh, Senator Graham and uh, actually... Illinois' Senator Dick Durbin had uh, read with their security clearance as chair and, and uh, uh, assistant chair of the committee the, the dissenting information. They couldn't share it because it was still classified. Mm-hmm. They could just try to tell all the other senators and all the members of the House, please trust us. We saw things that, that you didn't. You have to believe me. Mm-hmm. It didn't work so great. The joint resolution to authorize military force against Iraq passed handily. It passed the House on October 10th, 2002, 296 to 133 votes. And the Senate the next day, 77 to 23. Mm-hmm. So now Colin Powell is given the job to, to present the case for war to the UN, to the international community, to try to build a coalition, to try to get a... a Approval from the UN Security Council, that falls on Secretary of State Colin Powell. He did not like the intelligence he had to work with. I just started thinking about how Colin Powell has one of those names (laughs) that you have to say the whole thing Mm -hmm. 
Because he has an unfortunate first name. Secretary of State Powell also works. Yes. Former Secretary Powell. It's colon. Retired General Hey, Colin. Colin. Like, it's just certain names just don't, like, <laughs> sound so good yeah. on their own. Deputy Tubby. Like Deputy Tubby. <laughs> Gotta be honest, I just kept thinking about Colin. Do you think he's doing well? Do you worry about Colin health? <laughs> I, w- I wonder if he wor- worries about Colin health. Well, you know, men of his age. <laughs> like, the, the whole point... Of Colin Powell, his his whole persona at the time was the one with integrity, the trustworthy one. Yeah. So he brought in CIA Director Tenet because the the script he was given, he thought was garbage. He threw it right out. I need to go to the guy who knows what's what. Give me the CIA director. Mm -hmm. And Tenet suggested that they base the presentation on the previously mentioned uh, National Intelligence Estimate. The declassified one. Mm-hmm. So Powell insisted that the link between Iraq and Al-Qaeda was, in his own words, bullshit, mm-hmm. and demanded it be taken out. Tenet counters that he has reliable intelligence, it's real, and convinces Powell to put it back in. What Tenet was talking about was the Alibi testimony under Egyptian torture. Oh. That, again, was already known to be junk. Yeah. On February 5th, Powell presented the strongest case his conscience would allow, with props, uh, a computer-generated slide of the mobile weapons truck, all sorts of visual aids. It Uh it was a whole multimedia presentation. Uh, Powell's staff did not know anything about the curveball source, only that Tenet said the source was good. Mm -hmm. I don't think they even knew that there was only one source for the mobile labs. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, another major source that uh, the, the CIA, you know, fed uh, uh, information from to uh, Colin Powell was Ahmed Shalabi. He was an Iraqi expatriate who had styled himself head of the shadow government in exile. Mm-hmm. His his whole, well, grift, essentially, was rubbing elbows with uh, neoconservatives and other people who believed in regime change to present himself as, you know, ready to go and, and be the, the, the liberator of democracy that, that they needed to help take Saddam out. Mm-hmm. All of his intelligence has also been declared fabricated, mm-hmm. by the way. Uh, Powell claimed Iraq was supporting al-Qaeda because uh, Abu Masab al-Zarqawi was operating a training camp in northern Iraq. Even if he did, the place it was meant to be was uh, uh, controlled by Kurds on the ground and patrolled by uh, U.S. uh, above, well within the no-fly zone. Uh, There was a a CIA analyst who uh, described this claim, saying the camp might as well be in Iran for all the control Saddam would have had over it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Everything we've talked about so far, every debunked claim, everything known to be false or at least suspect, everything that came from a known fabricator by U.S. intelligence at the time, was in this speech. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some other uh, experts at okay. hand. The U.N. inspectors, the much-vaunted U.N. inspectors who had been removed from the country, except for most of the time we're talking about, they were still inspecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the administration always presented them as victims of Saddam Hussein and his regime. Mm-hmm. Well, they requested the evidence of Iraq's nuclear program because they didn't 
find one. What do, what do you know that we don't? We, we've been going there for, for years and years now. Mm-hmm. And they immediately recognized the bulletproof case was based on forgeries and poor analysis. Mm-hmm. So on March 16th, 2003, uh, Vice President Cheney appeared on Meet the Press to say that the inspectors' claims were invalid. Mm. We love the inspectors as long as we could use them as props and not have to listen to them. Yeah. U.S. intelligence agencies refused to dispute the inspectors' claims or provide any additional evidence to to convince them they were wrong. Mm -hmm. We'll just have the vice president yell at them on TV. We we don't have to actually... uh, show that you were wrong about us being wrong. Uh-huh. Paul Wolfowitz ordered a CIA report on uh, Chief Inspector Hans Blix just to see if they could get any leverage on him or his office. Mm-hmm. Wolfowitz was pretty upset when it turned out that Blix was basically clean. Yeah. Yeah. So all these facts are available to the world, right? Like, the the only reason Cheney had to go on Meet the Press to say that to, to say that the opinion of the inspectors were wrong was because the press was reporting the opinions of the inspectors. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew that there was controversy. Uh, and as much as the administration tried to, tried to pretend there wasn't. So these facts, along with a whole lot of other reasons, helped inspire the biggest global series of peace protests ever. Mm-hmm. We've only been talking about the U.S. case up to this point, but there was the time when 150,000 people marched in London the day after Tony Blair laid out his case for joining the invasion. Oh. Halloween 2002, 150 cities in the UK and, and many, many cities in the US hosted uh, protests. Oh. Uh, there were up to 1 million people marching in Florence, Italy, November 9th, 2002. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tens of thousands gathered in the National Mall every few weeks. There's regular, regular peace protests in Washington, D.C. And and the biggest demonstration, actually the biggest peace demonstration ever globally, was February 15th, 2003. The largest anti-war protest of all time. Three million people just in Rome alone. Million and a half in Madrid 100,000 people uh, outside the UN building in New York, double that number in San Francisco. There was a protest in McMurdo Ice Station on February 15th. <laughs> Literally the entire world. Uh-huh. So, dear, what have you learned? I learned about these protests. Yeah? That I don't feel like we're... Uh, not not getting enough play on the 24-hour news channels? N- not enough that I remember it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Largest peace movement in world history. Yeah, uh, the the U.S. news didn't really cover that. Probably covering something about, like, flags <laughs> and patriotism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. They were gearing up to embed Geraldo so he can tell the world where uh, his unit is right now. Mm-hmm. Damn it, Geraldo. Oh... That was a strange time. (laughs) Go be honest, haven't, like, kept way up on a lot of that stuff. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. I mean, you were in middle school or or early high school. Yeah, 2002. I was 13, 14. Mm -hmm. Some of these things I remember, 
I remembered the tubes way more than the mobile vans, and I think you were the opposite. I remember the mobile vans <laughs> a lot. The tubes, as you kept talking about it, it like came back. Mm-hmm. But really, like I remember the mobile vans. <laughs> like I think I remember like a news video where they were like, "Oh look, the mobile vans moved because they're mobile." Entirely fake. <laughs> yeah. No such thing as as the vans. Yeah. It was just like a van. <laughs> That it was some video of. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to hear it all. Mm-hmm. Especially now with all the context mm-hmm. that definitely wasn't being said then. Right. Um, it was a really weird time to be alive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, of, of my almost 32 years. Mm hmm. 2001 to like 2005 was a strange time. <laughs> yes, yes. And nothing else compares to how freaking messed up it was. And like looking back on it and like the propaganda mm-hmm. is insane. <laughs> Basically, the, the, the point that I was trying to, to reach by making this episode is that don't let anyone tell you we didn't know better yeah don't let anyone tell you that the intelligence was convincing oh none of it was convincing or that everyone was on board those are lies and they are lies just as false as the yellow cake deal or the muhammad atta meeting the next time someone says that the U.S. military has to intervene and boasts about their sources, you got to ask yourself if you can trust them. you got to check what they said 17 years ago. Yeah. Because that's going to tell you a whole lot about what they're willing to say now. Yeah. And with that, we're going to take a break and be back with your letters. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. We have letters for you today. We do. It's Valencrimes, so are they love letters? No. They're appreciation letters. Yes. Okay. Yes, they are. Marmar writes in, uh, and they have recently gotten completely caught up oh, my on goodness. our episodes. Wow. Um, and they are not going to answer all of the prompts. Good. <laughs> But are answering a couple. There's more than 90 of them. (laughs) Uh, Their favorite alien is Mork from Ork. Cool, cool. Uh, And their favorite circus act is Babette. Babette. Uh, Babette uh, was originally born Vanderbilt Broadway. What a name. I don't believe that for a second. (laughs) That might have also been a stage name. Hard to say. (laughs) Vanderbilt grew up in Round Rock, Texas, and ran away from home and joined the circus in San Antonio. And the only opening was for the Women's Trapeze Act, uh, which they took on. And after some years with the circus, they went on to Paris as one of the top female impersonators of the 1920s. And then uh, their act was copied in the movie Victor Victoria, and they went on to be one of the... uh, Main consultants for many circus movies in Hollywood. Congratulations, Babette. You are a foundational part of the modern circus. Yeah. 
<laughs> and thank you for writing in. Thanks, Marmar. Robbie writes in uh, to talk about a dog of Flanders and how it relates to one of our topics of conversation in, in our uh, Lucy Maud Montgomery episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, a dog of Flanders is one of those uh, classic stories that, you know, seems to, to speak to one particular historic and cultural moment, but then just has a worldwide audience for some reason. You know, it, it just hit uh, other people just right at, at the right time to, to become a bit of a, a phenomenon uh, all over the place, which has to be unexpected. Mm-hmm. So thanks, Robbie, and, and thanks for all the kind words. Peter writes in, uh, just wanted to say that they really enjoyed our last episode. Oh, thank you. Uh, especially since they had only recently heard about Anne of Green Gables. From uh, the Netflix show Russian Doll. It depends on how much Canadian TV you watched as a kid. And in exactly what years you were a kid. That you know Anne of Green Gables. Clearly, it's not as universal as you might think. I guess. I guess it's just because I uh, had a lot of friends that also liked the historical fiction. Yeah, yeah. It's a very strange concept that people don't know it. (laughs) There are people who haven't seen a single Star Wars movie. Yeah, I I also have issues with that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Ramona wrote in uh, twice since we last hey. recorded. <laughs> they won't know you're going to edit it. That's true. <laughs> she really enjoyed the uh, Lucy Maud Montgomery episode and is considering checking out Anne with an E. And Do also it. shared some family history of uh, what her grandparents got up to out on the the frontiers of the Pacific Northwest. Mm. She also says she wasn't really uh, uh, interested in Disney stuff in general or had any interest to go to the parks until uh, hearing us talk about our planning. And if that is the case, I would recommend to to anyone who finds themselves in that boat to not go. (laughs) What I mean is... It is their job to convince you whether you want to go or not, uh, to, to take a look at the attractions and, and stuff available to make that decision. If hearing us talk about it made you want to go, that's just an example of enthusiasm being infectious. Yeah. Yeah. And you might be inspired to take that look and make that decision for yourself, and, and maybe not. But, like, don't, don't take our word for it. Do your own research. Take my word for it. It's fun. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't get the flu immediately upon returning home like I did. (laughs) That sucks. It was bad. (laughs) But as for the the current prompt, I wanted to know about people's favorite lies. Mm. And Ramona's got a few, like a, a, a Chinese general who had tea by himself to make the enemy army think they were walking into a trap. Oh. There's some cultural context into to Chinese military matters that escapes me, but I guess it worked. Uh, there, there's also the, the doctor who saved a load of people from going to a concentration camp by diagnosing them with Syndrome K, which was a made-up disease. But scary. It's disease. A, it's a scary thing the Nazis didn't want to catch, so they stayed away. 
Uh, there's also the the Swedish man that introduced the Game and Watch uh, uh, platform to a Western market and and helped Nintendo grow uh, by lying and saying he was part of a much more connected company than he really was. <laughs> uh, also, there there is a common story that Idaho translates to gem of the mountains when really it doesn't. It's a it's a totally made up word that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> But, you know, people like the story well enough, even when they, they've discovered that it was false. Yeah. So thanks for all those, Ramona. Uh, Kevin writes in and answers uh, a couple prompts. First being favorite superhero. And Kevin wants to talk about a whole team of superheroes. Yes. Uh, from the wonderful 101. Yeah. Uh, which they were just in the middle of rewatching uh, your old LP of that. <laughs> and uh, Kevin also shares favorite lie. And they're going to go with the saying, fake it till you make it. Mm -hmm. Um, But for a specific example, Orson Welles once told a story of how he got his first acting role by lying his ass off and pretending that it was he was a big name actor from New York. Well, he was just not yet. Yeah. 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 (laughs) That's how it works, right? Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. Kieran wrote in and his favorite lie is, is the life and times of George... Uh, Salmanazar, uh, a Frenchman whose real name is unknown to history, uh, but he made his fame and fortune by touring the world and sharing stories of his life on the island of Formosa, better better known today as Taiwan. Fact is, he, he never went. Uh, it, it was entirely, entirely made up, but nobody else had gone either, so, so who was going to be the fact checker there, huh? Nobody. He pretended to actually be a, a native of the island, a Christian convert who was brought back to Europe by missionaries. He invented an entire language for his supposed homeland uh, with its own alphabet. He, he came up with the whole religion that he converted from. Eventually, he, he was faced with someone who had actually been there and, and debated him and won the debate. What? So uh, you can find out more about uh, George and the Formosa he claimed that was on headstuff.org from one of Kieran's own articles. Thanks, Kieran. Uh, Sarah writes in and shares a very cute picture of her sister boyfriend, her sister's boyfriend's cat, Fifi. Fifi's adorable. Fifi's very cute. Thank you, Sarah. And thanks to everybody for writing in. If you would like to give us a letter, where can those go, dear? Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And we want to hear your show suggestions, your, your questions, your corrections, uh, any stories you might want to share, like if your grandfather got in a knife fight in the frontier days. Yeah. <laughs> and the responses to our usual prompts. Darling, what do you want to hear about for next time? I want to hear about everyone's object that they could not live without. Ooh. So send those in to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. That is right. And while you're out there, you can uh, give us a rating and review, please, on Apple Podcasts or wherever else gives you the option, just so we can uh, uh, find out what people think. Uh, you can also tell your friends. Word of mouth goes a long way, and it brings new people Maybe you recently started a new job, and and you're you're telling your new coworkers about the this lovely couple and the things they say and their sweet fluffy dog. 
And you can also follow along with us on uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, or on Instagram. At History Honeys. Now, before I let people go on this somewhat short episode, uh, I'd like to, to move away from history and talk about current events. Mm-hmm. This is a big year. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is really the last time we're going to be able to talk to you before uh, Super Tuesday, before the Illinois primaries. My conscience would not be clear unless I came and advocated for the candidacy of Senator Bernard Sanders. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. Advocating. Okay. I'm advocating. Okay. It's not where I was. I thought you were just going to tell people to vote. I am going to tell people to vote, but I'm going to tell people specifically who to vote for and who to support. There's a lot of good reasons. Uh, I'm not going to talk about policy or electability or just like consistency, which are all very important. I'm going to talk about, uh, I'm going to try to synthesize some points about the general message and why it's important to me. And is that life sucks. So life really sucks in America today and pretty much everywhere else. Mm-hmm. And it sucks to live in a world where freedom means uh, uh, 2,000 TV channels, but also that you can't afford insulin. Yeah. And every day you look out the window and you see that the world is wrong and that society has a shape no kind or decent person would ever choose to make. And even if you look back at how we got here, which is something our show tries to do sometimes, and, and you can see who benefits from this order and how they maintain it, you don't feel any better. You probably feel even worse sometimes because you know that, that it's the result of a deal that was struck generations before you were ever born. Mm-hmm. What force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? And that is where the Sanders campaign comes in, because they have an answer for that when they borrowed from the labor movement, something else we talk about on the show a lot. What the Sanders campaign says is that you're right, but you are not alone. Life sucks in the same way, or at least in very related ways, for millions and millions of people all around you. And nothing is stronger than a mass movement of people who are willing to fight for someone other than themselves. And nobody gets left behind. In our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of atoms magnified a thousandfold. We can bring birth to a new world from the ashes of the old. To quote Pete Seeger. <laughs> and that is why I am encouraging not just participation, but focused, dedicated participation to see the slight window, the, the crack in the door, and to grab it because it's the last best chance that I've seen in my entire lifetime to return some measure of power into the hands of average people. Mm -hmm. Thank you for allowing me to hijack our show for a few minutes, dear. (laughs) I mean, I don't really have a say. You edit it. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, I'm Grant. I'm Lena. And history's better with with your honey. honey.